0: back to another episode of Spreading the Word. Today we have a really special guest. uh, Sean DeTile from Laconia, New Hampshire is joining us. He's a guest speaker at our retreat that we're doing for our congregation, and uh, he's been a a great encouragement to us this weekend. Our, Our topic has been growth, starting from the inward personal growth in our relationship with God and ultimately moving towards our relationships with each other as Christians, and then flowing through to our relationships within the community. So I want to I welcome Sean to our episode. I, uh, I thank him for his his many hours of work here. Uh, Sean, why don't you tell us a, a little bit about where you're coming from in, in New Hampshire? Okay.
1: Uh, Laconia, New Hampshire, it's central uh, New Hampshire, and uh, my extended family is... Been in Laconia area for generations, um, My uh, there's a business called Dutile and Sons Oil in Laconia that's been there 90 years, and that's with my great-grandfather that started it, so Laconia is very much uh, home to me, but we've been there for five years, starting a, a new church with uh, different ministries, uh, ministry, ministry initiatives to, to reach people there.
0: So I know the uh, the theme we talked about this weekend was one that I gave you, just very skeleton framework of, of growth, but how did you approach that in, in terms of planning the different lessons you put together this weekend?
1: Yeah, so started with the importance uh, for any of us in any work that we're doing to, as Christians to uh, have and, and, and develop a, a deep dependency on Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus would say, apart from me, you can do nothing. And uh, my experience is that many Christians know that to be true, but uh, not always do we feel it to be true, such that we, uh, that that feeling of need just drives us to a a way of life that is, uh, that allows for that dependency to develop through spiritual disciplines and just a daily dependency on him. So, um. So it started by talking about the uh, the need to be fully dependent on Christ, and then went on to talk about that some of our ways of thinking about a triune God. And then we went on to talk about how that for every Christian, uh, developing a deep communion, uh, not just with God but with each other, uh, is is essential. Um, and so, how do we foster relationships among Christians that are meaningful and? Uh, strengthening and then last thing we've talked about is how do we engage our community discernment.
0: So within the overarching theme of growth, the sermon that you gave today was entitled Living as Believers in an unbelieving world. Mm. And uh this is one that uh that really makes the rubber meet the road in terms of what the Christian walk looks like. Mm. And uh without any further ado we'll jump right into your sermon and uh, Look forward
1: to hearing from you. Jeremiah twenty nine, one through fourteen, is the passage we're going to look at this morning. And oddly enough, it is, I think, one of the passages in the Bible that is most leading for us in terms of how we live in a land of unbelievers faithfully. It's an Old Testament passage. I want to read um, Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. This is the text of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah in Jerusalem, the skilled workers, and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, the son of Shaphan. And to Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And the letter said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters." I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So Jeremiah had the uh, uh, fortunate or unfortunate experience of preaching to the Israelites um, before they went into exile, to compel them to repent and change. But when they did not repent and change, yeah. Jeremiah also preached to them from exile. Okay, And so when Jeremiah preaches to them from exile, the form and content of his message changes a bit. It's kind of like talking to someone before they go to jail and uh, after they're already in jail. So before they go to jail, you say, You need to stop this. You keep doing this, you're going to get caught, things are not going to go well for you if you continue in this way, but, but once they're locked up, you stop your warnings and you just say things like, I told you so, no. <laughs> you say things like, well, wh- where do we go from here? Do you see now what you need to change? Right. But it's a little more than that too. When someone's in jail, you also want to offer hope that what they have done is not irreparable. And so you could tell an inmate all the things they need to do in order to get out of jail and back into the real world. Uh, But if they feel like they have forever ruined any future for themselves, they will not have any emotional energy to do the things they need to do. And so chapter 29, uh, Jeremiah's tone changes from what it was before. Jeremiah's preaching before chapter 29 is very much a warning. Uh, But starting in chapter 29, or really chapter 28, the exile uh, Jeremiah warned of has begun. And so the message before exile is repent and change or you're going into exile. The message after it is God still has great plans for your future, but you must learn to live by your faith in the exiled land you are now in. And so for this reason, the latter part of Jeremiah is a particularly helpful section of scripture for Christians in North America today, why? Because the latter half of Jeremiah is a message to God's people who find themselves in a land of unbelievers, okay? And so I've titled this lesson today, Living as Believers in a Land of Unbelievers. So something you, you, you may not know, and, and, and I didn't know until I began to study this passage, um, is that when the Israelites were exiled out of their homeland, there were actually two waves of exile. Um, uh, this would have been the uh, sixth century BC. So we know that the ultimate migration uh, happened in 587 BC when the temple was destroyed and the city was leveled. But some time before then, Nebuchadnezzar came and surrounded Jerusalem and took some of the temple ornaments uh, to the Babylonian temple and took with him on that first exile a wave of about ten thousand men. Okay. And the men Nebuchadnezzar chose to take with him out of the city in this first wave of exile, he chose them very strategically. Okay. You can think of them as the best of the best in Jerusalem. Okay. They were the professional class. They were the most physically capable. They were the most handsomely attractive. They were the most educationally qualified. Um, They were the people who would have been front runners in the various sectors of Israeli life. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take people from Israel who could, if properly trained, be an asset to his growing empire. He was not concerned with the lower class. Why? Because the lower class would never start a revolt. Uh, He was not afraid of the women, children, or elderly. Why? Because... um, uh, uh, they were not going to peop- be the people who were going to put a stop to his uh, global expansion. He was concerned with the strong, uh, the most qualified, the leaders in Israel. So think about it. Whenever one nation takes over and conquers another, there are always two things the ruling king can do to ensure that his POWs are never a threat to him again. Two things, are you ready? Number one, he can take their land and kill their bodies, wipe them out, or he can take their land and kill their spirits. So what do I mean? So Nebuchadnezzar kept these 10,000 captives alive as POWs, but he had every intention of killing the Israel in Israel uh, these 10,000 men were moving to Babylon to be Babylonized okay they were to become Babylonian in the Babylonian process if we want to call it that can be found in Daniel chapter 1 where we read what these exiles these 10,000 went through here's what it says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it and the Lord de- delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of, of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his, of his God. Then the king ordered Ashurbanaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israel- Israelites from the royal family and nobility. These are the 10,000. Okay, Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well, in, uh, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. So these 10,000 recruits were brought to Babylon and forced into three years of basic training. Three years. (laughs) We thought six weeks in the army was tough. And their basic training involved, if you heard it, learning a new language, becoming experts in Babylonian literature, including its stories, mythologies, histories, and worldview. Nebuchadnezzar's goal was in three years' time to totally kill the Israel in Israel. And what we find in Daniel chapter 3 is the first major test of these 10,000 recruits. What happens in Daniel 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar has an image of gold um, created that was 90 feet high and nine feet wide. This thing was as tall as a nine-story building. No no building in our city is that tall uh, back in Laconia. Uh, So Nebuchadnezzar builds this giant statue, this idol made out of gold, and when it's complete, he calls all of his leading officials together, and he says this. He says, all right, guys, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. If we've done our job, in the past three years, then every one of these recruits should pass this test. And for those who do not pass this test, we will throw them into the furnace and do away with them. And what's interesting is that the recruits are not just from Israel, okay? Nebuchadnezzar had captured the best of the best from a number of different countries because here's how the test reads. Daniel 3, then the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall, fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Okay? And so if you've read this story, you know that only three of the thousands of recruits refuse to worship the idol. It was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Um, so, this is the context of the first wave of exile that Jeremiah writes to. In fact, Jeremiah 29 was written to this first wave. Right? So, today I want to examine from this uh, story three common avenues believers take in their quest to live as believers in a land of unbelievers. I want to talk about three avenues of living as believers in a land of unbelievers, only one of which is the acceptable avenue. Okay, Three avenues are, number one, separation avenue, number two, assimilation avenue, and number three, incarnation avenue. So let's start with separation avenue, all right? Separation Avenue is the avenue that the false prophet Hananiah advised these recruits in Jeremiah chapter 28 to take. So listen to what Hananiah told them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So Hananiah, the false prophet, prophesied to these same 10,000 exiles that their time in Babylon would be short-lived, two years tops. Within two years, I'll bring you back, he says. So think about it. When you know that your stay in a place will be short-lived, like Hananiah prophesied, the community of faith will tend toward two responses. Number one, the community of faith will, will spend most of their time talking about their upcoming departure. So we're leaving soon, guys. Get ready, be ready. Don't get distracted. It won't be long now. Okay, we're going back home. So the community of faith will spend most of their time talking about the upcoming departure. And secondly, if we know we're leaving soon, the community of faith will see little sense in engaging the community they are a part of because they know they're leaving soon. Why invest? Right? Listen, everyone, don't bother with school boards and politics and business and building new things in the city because we'll be gone soon. You're wasting your time, just get ready to leave. And this is, I believe, a strong tendency in the church today to make Hananiah our prophet. In fact, I think in many ways he used to be mine. Uh, When we listen to Hananiah as a church, we find that we spend most of our time in our church gatherings talking about how bad life is here and how good it will be when Christ returns and brings us home right? Uh, Almost every sermon is about the badness of this world. The most recurring theme in our conversations is about the need to remain unpolluted from the world. Stay away from this, stay away from that. We have a long list of things not to do in our time here. Secondly, when we listen to Hananiah, we see little sense in engaging the community around us, and instead see all of the activity of community life as just killing time till quitting time. Right. So it won't really matter in the end because it's not spiritual. Uh, and this view is, is usually combined with a very ancient Greek way of thinking about the world and about God. So the world is bad. Our bodies are bad. Heaven is where we will finally escape from this bad place. The world will blow up and be no more one day, so do not put any energy into it. Okay. And again, this is an ancient Greek view of the world, but it's not a biblical one. And so one of the things that happens over time as God's people develop a reputation of separation in their communities is that their communities do not include them in discussions of great importance because they wonder what, if anything, the community of faith contributes to the welfare of their city because they don't seem to care much. Okay, Let me give you an example. In the early part of 2015 I attended the monthly Lakes Region Pastors Fellowship in the Lakes Region of New Hampshire made up mostly of Protestant ministers from various denominations in the Lakes Region. For this particular pastors meeting, we invited Eric Adams, who was from the Laconia PD, to be with us and to talk about the heroin epidemic that the PD was seeing firsthand. And in particular, we wanted to know as pastors and ministers how we could help. And so at the end of Eric's talk, one of the pastors asked the obvious question to Eric, so how can we help you? And Eric, said something that I haven't forgotten since. He started to say something, and then he quickly stopped and paused for a good three to five seconds, uh, and then very honestly and sincerely stated, I don't know. What do you do? And when he said this, he was not asking, what ministries do your churches have that I'm not aware of? That's not what he was asking. I know Eric what he was asking was what role do churches play in this community because I really don't know okay he was not being snark he was voicing he was not voicing an atheistic agenda he was just he genuinely did not know what role churches played in our community and I've come to discover that many people in Laconia at least believe that churches exist to offer worship services to those who feel like they need that sort of thing. But beyond that, they're not really sure what role the church plays, okay? And one of the things that has fueled this this understanding of the church is a separation theology on our own part, which says that this world and all that happens in it is ultimately of no value and is soon passing away and we're soon going home, so let's gather together Let's talk about how bad things are. Let's have fantastic worship services while we wait for Christ to return or Nebuchadnezzar's yoke to be broken, okay? Now, to be fair, there are parts of separation theology that are right, right? We should keep ourselves unpolluted by the world. Uh, We must be cautious with people because bad company corrupts good morals. And it is true that Christ could return any day now, but I hope you see that there are also some blind spots in a separation stance that in some ways are deadening the church's influence in our community. Okay. And so another thing that usually follows separation theology is a, is a masked pride uh, which says, all of you people who are not Christians are godless and immoral, and I really can't have much to do with you unless you leave all of that, because God hates immorality in all of its forms. <laughs> and, and the Christians who say this are usually, usually blind to their own inner arrogance and, 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 and personal confidence in how good they have been for God. Okay. And this arrogance is, of course, the exact opposite of the blind beggar faith we talked about on Friday night of knowing that I need a savior. Okay. So, okay, so this is the first avenue that I think is most common, or is common rather, in church separation avenue. Christ is returning soon. Don't invest. It's just kill time till quitting time. Keep yourself unpolluted. Stay away. Okay. The second. Um, avenue is the assimilation avenue and this one's a little more complicated because it's a little less obvious. So assimilation happens when the community of faith accommodates to the world. On separation avenue we're so different from the world that we can't relate to it but on assimilation avenue we are so much like the world that we lose our distinctiveness. And so this is what Nebuchadnezzar was pushing for in these 10,000 recruits. He wanted a full assimilation such that there would no longer be any noticeable difference between native Babylonians and immigrated Babylonians. Does that make sense? And so assimilation usually takes two forms in our churches today. The obvious form is when we give up our religious identity altogether and just blend in. You know, So our standards and our practices become the same as everyone else's standards and practices. You drink, we drink. You have premarital sex, we have premarital sex. You cheat on your taxes, we cheat on our taxes. It's a, it's a full simulation. Um, this is the obvious form. And for sure, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tempted to blend in in this way, it's, it's, it's safer. It's safer. Okay. But the second form of assimilation is much more subtle, and therefore I think much more common, and the one that we need to be more on guard about. And it happens when we hold on to our religious beliefs, but we, we segregate them to certain places and certain times. So the West, as a general rule, uh, has done this by creating over a couple centuries of time a secular religious divide which allows us to classify some things in our life as secular and some things as religious and the two never talk, okay? And, And because they don't talk, they don't influence each other. So consequently, our secular activity in the world often looks just the same as everyone else's secular activity in the world, with the exception that we try not to commit any obvious sins. So as an example, uh, an example of this would be uh, venturing out with your small group to serve people on a Sunday afternoon and reporting to work the next day as an attorney, where all day long you search for loopholes in contracts whereby your clients can get out of the promises they made to people. This is a form of assimilation because we have created sectors of society wherein uh, religious faith does not apply. Does that make sense? And so you may be thinking, well, I don't see that that's assimilation. I don't imagine there's any real impact in the world today. Well, well, consider what some people have said about this. Historian Sidney Mead said, this internalization or privatization of religion is one of the most momentous changes that has ever taken place in Christendom. Nancy Percy in her book Total Truth said, The secular-religious divide has resulted in a fractured or fragmented life with our faith firmly locked into the private realm of church and family where it rarely has any chance to inform our life and work in the public realm and then she gave a particularly potent example of this in her book. She interviewed a physics professor uh, for an article and the professor was a sponsor for a well-known campus ministry at a large secular university and she asked him in the interview to explain a Christian perspective on his field and especially on the new physics of of relativity theory and quantum mechanics. And to her dismay, the professor had nothing to offer. Her quote is, the exact words he used are branded into my memory. He said, quantum mechanics is like auto mechanics. It has nothing to do with my faith. And she closed this section of her book by saying that we have to reject the division of life into sacred, secular realms. This dichotomy in our own minds is the greatest barrier to liberating the power of the gospel across the whole of culture today. So Christianity is not just about personal faith and morality. Christianity is an entire worldview, right? And a worldview functions in our lives as a unified overarching system of truth that applies to everything from social issues to history to politics, to anthropology, and to the other, all other subject areas. But when we do not allow the biblical worldview to shape our understanding and engagement in every conceivable facet of modern society, we will inevitably assimilate with other worldviews which do not have at their core the love of God and the love of neighbor. And I think it's clear to conclude that our modern society has been shaped not by the love of God and the love of neighbor, but by what will lead to the greatest personal gain or the greatest personal pleasure even at the expense of our neighbors. Okay. So do you see the problem with assimilation? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would be fully immersed in the industry of Babylon and they had also and had they also adopted an assimilation mentality they would have rendered themselves indistinguishable from the rest of the Babylonian workforce. Okay. So separation avenue separates us so much from the world that we have no input. Assimilation avenue unites us so much with the world that we have no influence. So what then is the third avenue? The third avenue is incarnation avenue. Hananiah would have us separate. Nebuchadnezzar would have us assimilate. But Jeremiah would have us incarnate. So let's read again Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 29, which is a heated response to the letter that Hananiah sent before him. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, To all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number and do not decrease. Why? Because you're not leaving soon. How long were they in Babylon? Seventy years, not two. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For, and here's a passage we know well, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. So Jeremiah says three things here that are very important for us. First of all, he says settle down. Settle down. He says, live life there, build homes, find work, build a life, increase in number because you're not leaving tomorrow. And he went on to say, live where you live because you believe it is where God has sent you. Jeremiah said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. And this is very humbling, folks. The Israelites could never have walked down the streets of Babylon saying to themselves, I can't believe you people live like this. God, what's wrong with these people? You know why? Here's why they can never say that. Because God carried them there. And why did God carry them there? Because they were filthy, wretched sinners too. Which speaks back to our Friday night talk. And now... They're going to walk down the streets of Babylon looking down on them for them being filthy, wretched sinners? I don't think so. What God wanted the Israelites to see was that although they were distinctively different than the Babylonians, they were in Babylon in part because they were just like them. Okay. In this way, every Christian, when we hear about the bad things that happen in our city, ought to confessionally say to ourselves, oh but for the grace of god i would be a headline too okay. jeremiah said settle down in the city and then he said seek the peace and prosperity of the city so the israelites were to be resident aliens in babylon they uh, they were exiles they were, they were pilgrims on their way somewhere else Babylon would never truly be home for them, just as this world will never truly be home for us. But the Israelites were called to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon just as they would seek the peace and prosperity of their own land. In fact, Jeremiah told them to work for Babylon's peace and prosperity. One of the most, transforming things about being in exile must have been the fact that they were to work for the welfare of people who did not care about them or their God. They were to work for their welfare. And this would have been transforming for them because in truth, they were told to do for Babylon what God had been doing for them all along. God had been working for their welfare even though they didn't care about him. That's why they were in exile. Now the Israelites were told to work for Babylon's welfare, even if Babylon did not care about them. And this would have been transforming because, um, in, in a sense, the Israelites were to act like God to the people of Babylon. They were to be the hands and feet of God to a people who would likely step on them. And this, I think, is still the Christian's calling today. We are called to work for the welfare of our city, even if our city does not care for our welfare. Why? Because Jesus came to work for our welfare, even while we were still sinners. Because Jesus fought for our salvation, even while we fought against him. Because Jesus refused to condemn us even when we were condemning him. Because Jesus incarnated our city rather than separating himself from it. Because Jesus suffered for us rather than making us suffer for him. We must seek the peace and prosperity of our city no matter its darkness because Jesus sought our peace and prosperity through the depth of our darkness too. And we must be the hands and feet of Christ to our neighbors, even as Jesus' hands and feet served us on the cross. This, I believe, is what Incarnation Avenue looks like. It thrusts us into the darkness of our city to be used by God to eradicate it, even as Jesus thrust himself into this dark world and successfully eradicated it by his blood too. Separation Avenue, assimilation Avenue, and incarnation Avenue. And I want to suggest as we close three specific ways we as the church can, three specific things we as a church can be doing to seek the peace and prosperity of our city. Three things. You ready? Number one, we can join the peace and prosperity conversations where they are happening in our city. We can join the peace and prosperity conversations where they are happening in our city. Now, we're not, we're not talking about the prosperity gospel here. We're talking about seeking the welfare of our city. Okay. But we must not join these conversations to take them over. We must join them because we care about the peace and prosperity of our city, and patiently wait for God to give us a voice in them. So this is why I was involved for about three years with an organization called Stand Up Laconia. Stand Up Laconia. It is where one significant peace and prosperity conversation was happening, and so Stand Up Laconia was a conglomeration of. Uh, people in Laconia who cared about the peace and prosperity conversation, uh, peace and prosperity of Laconia, and cared about um, the devastating effects our addiction issue was having. And so I joined Stand Up Laconia not to take it over, but to join that conversation. And over the course of about three years, I gained the respect uh, of each of those people, was invited onto the board of Stand Up Laconia and um, became someone who they would turn to um, for uh, wisdom on what we should do and what we shouldn't do. I joined the conversation not to take it over, but lo and behold, when I was there, I was invited to contribute, okay? So join the peace and prosperity conversations where they are happening in your city. Let's find where those are. Let's be a part of it. Let's not separate. Let's get involved and let's get our hands dirty. Secondly, we can become more fluid or rather more fluent in secularity. Become more fluent in secularity. We can seek them to master the secular worldview language so that we might knowledgeably and lovingly expose why it can never never lead our city to peace and prosperity. So do you understand why your neighbors think the way they think? Do you know their worldview as well as they do? Do you want to get to know them or or are they of little interest to you? What are you doing to understand them better? I think the church must, one of the church's roles is to identify the gods of our land which have disallowed peace and prosperity to result in our city and explain then why Jesus is the only way to peace and prosperity in our city. But if we don't understand the other alternative gods that our uh, secular world turns to, if we, can't see, if we don't know that, that God as, as well as they do, uh, they won't listen to us. And so this would have been part of the benefit Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had of being part of the 10,000. They got a full Babylonian education. But they could not assimilate. Okay? So join the peace and prosperity conversations where they are happening. Secondly, become more fluent in secularity or in the um, <coughs> worldview of your people. Thirdly, we can ask what it looks like to be distinctively Christian in the places God already has us. We can ask what it looks like to be distinctively Christian in the places God already has us. So our Christian bankers, businessmen, manufacturers, and distributors must ask themselves, how can we contribute to an economic system in our city which allows for the peace and prosperity of our neighbors? Our Christian principals, superintendents, teachers, guidance counselors, and librarians must ask themselves, how can we contribute to an education system in our city which allows for the peace and prosperity of our neighbors? Our Christian coaches, recreation leaders must ask, how can we contribute to a recreation system in our city which allows for the peace and prosperity of our neighbors? This is why uh, I am on the Little League and soccer boards in Laconia. I want to contribute to a recreation system that is not driven by the God of self-exaltation. I want to be a part of that. Our Christian reporters and information distributors must ask themselves, how can we contribute to an information system in our city which allows for the peace and prosperity of our neighbors? So it is not our job to secularize our work. It is our job to find a distinctively Christian way to perform our work and not assimilate. And then lastly, our elders and preachers must ask, how can we instruct and equip our memberships to surrender everything to the kingship of Christ in our city such that Christ becomes king in our city through them?
0: Okay.
1: Elders and preachers must ask, how can we instruct and equip our memberships to surrender everything to the kingship of Christ in our city? such that Christ becomes king in our city through them. So if we are going to seek the peace and prosperity of our city, three things I think that we can be doing even now. Join the peace and prosperity conversations where they're happening. But join them not to take them over. Join them to uh, be a part and look for invitations to Share a Christian perspective. Secondly, become more fluent in the worldview of your neighbors. Know your neighbor's worldview better than they do. Because only in knowing it can you effectively deconstruct why it cannot lead them or our city to peace and prosperity. And then thirdly, ask what it looks like to be distinctively Christian where you're already at. So in your present vocations, what does it mean to be distinctively Christian there? That's where our faith applies in the most hours of our day. The last thing Jeremiah said was to pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So do we pray for our city? Do we pray for our city? As you consider the people in your path every week, whether you're a mom, or an employee, or a teacher, or if you're retired, as you consider the people in your path every week, do you pray for them? Do you pray for your friends? Do you pray for your neighbors? Do you pray for them individually and specifically by name? We have this challenge right now uh, at Water's Edge, this uh, 40-day Pray for One challenge. And it's a challenge to pray for one lost person to share God's love with every day. We intended it to be, I've, I intended it to be a lead-up to Easter, a 40-day challenge. But um, through 40 days of praying for one every day. I've become convicted that it needs to be a a permanent challenge for for us. Do you pray for the people in your path every day? Pray for the peace and prosperity of our city. Oddly, Jeremiah has a lot to say about how we as Christians employ our faith or live as believers in a land of unbelievers. We can't separate. We can't assimilate. We, but we must find ways to incarnate by the power of the Holy Spirit in us wherever we go. There is no such thing as secular as secular anything in Christianity. Either everything is about Jesus or nothing is, and that is the way that we must live. That's Jeremiah twenty-nine. 1 through 14. I hope that there's something about that uh, passage there that can spur us into our last session where we talk about um, communing with our uh, um, what did I title it? Uh, Engaging with our community discerningly. Engaging (laughs) with our community discerningly. So this afternoon uh, in our last session we'll talk about what are those things that we can do collectively, beyond what I've just said, to uh, effectively and discerningly engage our community? Um, I'd like to close this time uh, with prayer, and then whatever follows that. Uh, so, If you would please pray with me. Father, we need your power to do what is before us to do. Uh, it is easy to assimilate. It is easy to separate. But Lord, you came and you incarnated this dark place. Lord, we would, I ask you for a boldness to enter into dark places. I pray that our children would be people who would not be afraid of the dark, but would be anxious to get in there and stir it up and cause the darkness to leave by us getting into the darkness and challenging it and living like Nebuchadnezzar, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived. I pray, Father, you'd help us to see those opportunities to incarnate. I pray that you would help us to identify how we can better incarnate those places we're already in. I pray that you'd help us to become fluent in understanding of the ways that our neighbors think. We would understand them better than they understand themselves. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to join those peace and prosperity conversations, to identify where they're happening, to be a part as we're able, and to be your voice in a dark world. God, help us to love this dark world, not to think we're better than it, but to see that we are just as needful of your grace as you desire to give them to. So give us a heart, Lord, for this Babylon. Give us a heart not to want to leave so quickly, but to know that you've sent us here. You've called us here. You've placed us here. Help us, Lord, to love people, to have the affection for each soul that you have for us. Help us, Lord, we need your empowerment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank Sean, for your encouraging message. Um, one of the things that occurred to me is right before you began speaking, uh, we as a congregation are, were here at this beautiful facility in New Tecumseh, and uh, we were joking about the prospect of buying a piece of property and setting up a commune and living isolated from the world. And at the back of my mind, knowing where we were going with the rest of the week, and I was like, hmm. I wonder. I wonder what Sean's thoughts on on our, our joking about this were, uh, but uh, in in truth, the temptation for faithful Christians is to live isolated, as you said, from an unbelieving world. Uh, you you identified three avenues to dealing with being a believer in an unbelieving world, and the first one was separation. Mm. So why is it so important? do you think, for Christians to resist that temptation?
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, A couple of reasons. First of all, um, separation theology, as I called it, is oftentimes um, fueled in part by our feeling of superiority over those that we live among. Don't want to be like them. They're the bad people. Uh, And that's usually an indication of our blindness of just how much we need grace as well. Uh, but secondly, uh, that separation is also oftentimes driven by fear.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: we fear the world, and so we don't. Uh, we try to stay as far away from it as possible. And uh, as a result, we often uh, raise children who are afraid to get into a dark world, like Jesus got into a dark world. Yeah. And that is definitely not something that we want to foster in our children.
0: Yeah, I think the term you used in your sermon was that uh, Christians who live in a separation theology uh, tend to have this masked pride. Mm. Uh, So faithful Christians, maybe not acknowledging it at at a a superficial level, but deep down can be uh, driven by this uh, sense of superiority or entitlement. How can a faithful Christian look at their lives and detect the symptoms of that? type of masked pride behavior in their
1: lives? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the ways we detect that mass pride is, is just to pay very close attention to our internal dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess especially when we're in the presence of others. When we're in the presence of others, are we thinking about um, how lost someone is and how we don't like someone and how uh, I need to be careful here, or are we feeling instead in their presence a genuine desire to know them, an affection for them? Um, so I think paying attention to what is going on in our minds as we are among lost people is an indication of how we, uh, 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 perhaps are the, the, the bent of our theology in that way. So I think that's a significant way that we pay attention to it.
0: So another thing you talked about was the privatization of religion. Why do you think this has been so damaging to the Great Commission that Jesus talks about in Matthew 28?
1: Yeah. um, My experience is that uh, because we have this religious secular divide, uh, people who spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week working uh, feel as if what they're doing is valueless.
0: Uh, and uh, what what they're doing in what respect? Their work or their
1: that secular work, yeah. as we've defined it. Uh, since the world will one day pass away, and and what's really important is my spiritual walk with God and, and converting people. Uh, my the, the actual tangible work of my job, whether I'm an engineer, whether I'm an IT manager, salesperson, or uh, you know simply a uh, manager of some sort, that that, that that work is valueless. And so I think we, we throw Christians into a dark world and we tell them that what you're doing, aside from your influence in that organization, the actual work that you do is of no value. Uh, but instead, I think that, that um, the, the biblical theology there is that uh, from, from the beginning, work uh, from Genesis 1 was not something that happened after the fall. Something that happened before the fall, work was a good part of God's creation. Hmm. But because we have allowed our minds to think about work secularly, we have also allowed ourselves to engage in work in a way that would not honor Christ. And so now we have a, uh, especially an American, uh, economic system that's dog eat dog, and that is that is contrary, completely contrary to our Christian worldview. To to engage in that environment in the way that they do.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's neat that you you bring up the American economy because um, here in Canada we we borrow a lot from American culture, but uh, one of the undercurrents that I think we have here is that people like to stay in their lanes. Uh, you you put things in individual mm. containers. Your lives, your your church life is your church life, your work life is your work life, and your extracurriculars stay there and never cross-pollinate between the three, and um, there is almost an abundance of tolerance that encourages people to um, not only respect, but celebrate the different worldviews of mm-hmm. other groups. And, and that can be challenging here, and um, that is a, a little bit different from, from what's happening in the States. Canadians are known as this apologetic type of personality, and that has fostered a a lot of celebration of tolerance above all other aspects of our life. Mm -hmm. The three different avenues you talked about were separation, assimilation, and then lastly, you talked about incarnation. Mm -hmm. So what does seeking the prosperity of our city look like to a modern Western Christian. Like, you, you gave some examples, but what, what are some practical, specific things that a modern Western Christian does to seek the prosperity of, and peace of their city?
1: Yeah. So something I've found common when I counsel with uh, teenagers, particularly teenage boys or teenage men who are about to um, you know, go off to college or the military as the case may be. And um, I guess I think of one gentleman in particular for whom he, he had almost no motivation for school uh, because he, uh, he could not get behind the, uh, the worldview taught to him about school, that school is about um, you do good in school so you can get a good job and make money. Mm-hmm. And for most um, millennials that I've talked to, that is not an, uh, a um, uh, that is not a motivation for work that uh, they are willing to get behind. if If my school is just about me getting a job and making money, I'm, I, don't, I don't even want to do it. But him and I have had some good conversations about is that the purpose of school? Mm-hmm. like what if what if school was, if we put it under the world, the uh, the Christian worldview, what what if what if school was about equipping me to serve humanity in a way that 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 humanity needs? Right. Um, so in that way, if he wants to be an attorney, well, what does an attorney do? An attorney helps to bring justice to people who have been unjustly uh, treated, uh, and so. A millennial can get behind that, go to school yeah. to become an attorney to fight for justice, which is exactly what the Christian worldview says it ought to be about. But in a dog-eat-dog, a Darwinian worldview, uh, um, be, be, an attorney is about um, getting all you can in, in any way you can.
0: Yeah, I think we're on the precipice of a of a regime shift in in worldviews between uh, what was the baby boomer. Uh, American Dream, white picket fence, two point three children, mm. dog named Spot, uh, <laughs> sort of thing, uh, to uh, what we'll we'll call the millennial worldview, which seems to be driven more by an altruistic, what is the greater purpose? What is the greater meaning? Seeking for meaning and purpose. Right. So, uh, if we if we talk about you know the specifics that you can do to seek prosperity and peace in your city mm. uh, for the millennial who's looking for a greater purpose. Mm. Why is that a thing that we should want? Why is that a thing that a, a Christian in a modern Western society would want for their city?
1: Yeah, and I would say that only the Christian has reason to want it. So, for example, a uh, if the world is just a conglomeration of uh, atomic energy over billions of years, there's no reason to want what we're talking uh, there's no purpose to life. There's no meaning behind it. There's no significant reason to do anything but fight. Social justice is meaningless or, or at least has has no backing if not for a worldview that says humanity is infinitely valuable mm-hmm. and not just rock. Yeah. So um, uh, so restate the question because I was going somewhere with it. Why, why does
0: a modern Western Christian even want peace and prosperity for their city?
1: Yeah, but I think because I think Paul, because e- even if we don't have a Christian worldview, all of us still have this longing in our hearts to um, to do something that we feel like is significant and meaningful, and actually, in, in the end, serves or benefits somebody else. Um, and all of us want that, uh, and uh, again, with with either a separation or an assimilation theology, we 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 effectively um, you know, cut cut our legs out from underneath us, and being able to actually bring that to the world as yeah.
0: Christians. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, for for some time now, I've I've held the belief that um, that the the social justice warrior and the Christian may not apparently have a lot of things in common, and there would be more things to argue over instead of uh, have as a, a common purpose. But um, for some time now, I've believed that there is a very large cross-sectional overlap in in purpose and drive, and that is Mm -hmm. the espousing of of value and importance Mm -hmm. of each and every human. Mm -hmm. And for the Christian who's out there wondering how you talk to someone in a community whose beliefs seem so contrasted to Christianity, how do you find that common ground? I think you look at the value that God places on human life and, and how loved his mm-hmm. creation is, and that's something you will absolutely have in common with any social justice warrior representing any cause that you can find out there, I would, I would argue. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, you you mentioned at, at the close there uh, your 40-day challenge you're doing with your congregation Water's Edge yep. uh, Church of Christ in Laconia, New Hampshire. Uh, tell us a, a little more about what started that initiative for you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... What started it was a, uh, well, uh, through my weekly preparations, you know, God teaches me as much as I teach anybody else. And He I've just been re um, reconvicted of the incredible value of each human person. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed in myself was that my prayers tended to be more macro than micro. Yeah. I prayed for the welfare of my city all the time. But not as much did I pray for individual souls. And what we find in the God of the Bible is that he is macro and micro at the same time. He effectively has all the world in his hands right now. And yet, when I pray right now, he is infinitely concerned about my prayer. Mm-hmm. And so I just recognize a, an imbalance in my own practice of my faith that said I'm, I'm, I'm prioritizing the macro and, 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 and not the micro at the same time. So this 40-day Pray for One Challenge is uh, challenging the congregation to specifically pray for one uh, lost soul every day to share God's love with. Yeah. And, and, and what it does is, is uh, it invites God to act on our behalf, but it also aligns our hearts and minds with the importance of every human soul sometimes we can forget that in, in the movement of our life, of that each human soul that we pass is of infinite value.
0: Yeah. And what does love look like uh, if we only consider it at the macro scale? It, it it doesn't really make sense from that point of view. You can't truly love without having an individual relationship with someone. And if you're focusing your prayer life on individuals and in specific situations, then I think that gets at the heart of what compassion is and what Jesus taught us in in his ministry.
1: Absolutely. I think if we apply that to um, uh, the need to not uh, uh, adopt this assimilation theology with our work, then our work also becomes about taking every individual customer with the utmost of respect, Mm -hmm. uh, valuing them, them, praying for them, but also with all of your employees, each one. Yeah. is a concern, of
0: course. Yeah, that's that's great. That's uh, real practical advice that I think Christians of, of all walks can, can appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to thank you, Sean, for coming here for all the, the number of hours you've put into this. Uh, if you're in the New Hampshire end of the world, uh, near Laconia, um, Sean is the pastor and preacher at Water's Edge Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also runs a counseling group called Dutile Christian Counseling mm-hmm. uh, and if if you're looking for someone to connect to uh, I, I get a sense that your ministry is about helping and supporting people uh, no matter where they're coming from mm-hmm. and uh, I'd, I'd encourage you if you're a listener uh, wherever you came across this podcast to, to reach out, uh, look him up, uh, get in touch with us and we can put you in, in touch with with Sean um, I, uh, I thank you and I thank God for your willingness to, to come be with us today. Thank you, Paul.